Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome, Stefan, to uh, The Gold Exchange Podcast. First question that, that uh, I, I'm interested in, what's your background in history? How does, how does anybody come to get involved in this crazy space full of uh, gold bugs and other assorted um, geeks and freaks? Um, how, and how did you come to, to found Money Metals Exchange? Sure. Well, thanks, Keith. Of course, it's uh, great to be on your podcast, uh, you know, listening to you and reading your writings for years and then getting to know you over the last several years uh, has been really great. And uh, I, I think, you know, going back to what kind of got me interested in precious metals, I'll go, I'll look, I'll talk a little bit more about my history beyond that, but it may have been the same thing that got your attention. And that was about 20 years ago, a little less than 20 years ago, I started reading the writings of Antal Fekete, who uh, found very, struck me as, as really an independent thinker and was bringing some ideas forward about monetary policy that fascinated me. And I was, I was interested because I was investing and, and, you know, had long been investing in real estate and was interested in interest rates and how interest rates are moving and what causes them to move. And that, that led me into a discussion. Uh, a discovery of how the Federal Reserve System actually works, and then how really crazy and, and upside down it is, and uh, and that's kind of what led me down the path to precious metals, along with some prompting from folks like Edwin Vieira, who I used to work with when I was at National Right to Work, who's a monetary historian and on the on the legal side. But just backing up a little bit from that, I personally was uh, always interested in public policy as a sort of free market libertarian thinking person, uh, starting with, at least in college, if not before, you know, in college it, at the University of Florida, it was learning about, you know, totalitarianism in the, in the college administration and just, you know, kind of leaving a taste in my mouth about where, you know, people are trying to control others in, in such a heavy-handed manner. And it, it, I think that may have inspired me to go into public policy. I went to Washington, D.C. In, in 1996 and started working in uh, outside organizations such as Americans for Tax Reform and then ultimately National Right to Work, where I spent 15 years fighting forced unionism, which is, you know, the idea that union officials use government force to compel individuals to join or support them and, of course, extract forced dues from them, which are then used and poured into big labor's big government agenda. And so that was my... Just let me interject, how many states have forced union laws and how many states are right to work right now? Yeah, I believe it's up to 28. They've passed several laws since I left in 2010. Actually, they passed more laws since I left than when I was there. So I wonder if there's a correlation. But ultimately, there were 21 when I started, and I think there were 23 when I left, and they've passed about five more since since then. These are right to work laws or uh, forced union laws? State, oh, I'm sorry, state right to work laws, um, where states have exempted themselves from the federal policy of forced unionism. It's actually imposed at the federal level, at least in the private sector. And then uh, states have the ability to opt out, but only if they affirmatively pass a right to work law. States actually govern their public employees for the most part on their own. And that has uh, stopped the expansion anyway of forced unionism 
In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled recently that, with, which was a national right to work case, that uh, forced union dues in the public sector is unconstitutional in, in full. So you literally cannot force an employee to pay union dues as a condition of employment if they're a government employee because that's state action and it's forced speech. And that was reversing precedents from you know 40 years ago, which upheld the idea to an extent, uh, trying to parse out the union's role as a bargaining agent from the union being involved in politics. And that was a completely unworkable system where workers couldn't opt out of really the bulk of union dues and all of its politics anyway. So especially if you have a union that's lobbying the government you know, for anything, that's including wages, that's political speech. So anyway, the bottom line is the Supreme Court actually said you can't have forced dues in the in the government sector at all, but the actual root power is the union monopoly bargaining power, which is the idea that a union can be installed, a private actor, and in in not even a government employee can be installed as the exclusive spokesman for all employees in a unionized government workplace. And that gives these private actors significant leverage vis-a-vis the government, the power to shut down public services and hold them for ransom and through strikes and other things. So that's that's the root problem. And, and there are about 30 states, I think, that affirmatively prop up that system in the government sector still. But the trend is definitely towards more freedom on the right to work issue um, and certainly on the forced dues issue. That's been you know major, major progress made there. I remember getting some introduction to this, and if it was high school, I think it was in high school, about you know the the, the argument was, well, since the union is is benefiting you by getting you a higher wage than you would otherwise get, then you know the union has the right to you know forcibly extract a certain amount of dues, and even then, you know, and I hadn't studied economics, but that just seemed like a dubious proposition. You mean like there's a certain wage, and then somehow the you know the union does something somehow to raise that wage? And then later, you know, coming to Mises, we said, you know, the only way to raise wages is to increase productivity, which, you know, usually means increased capital investment. And, um, you know, the union seems to be fighting that tide. But anyways, okay, because we got you a higher wage than you'd otherwise get, that gives us the right then to, you know, force you to be a member of the union. That's their argument. And of course, it's specious because they actually specifically make it illegal or block the ability of the employee to bargain their own deal with their employer. So the best and most productive employees are held back and and the lower performers are the ones that are, you know, sort of catered to. And as a result, performance declines and so does individual, you know, excellence. And, and so the union has this approach where they say, oh, we're forced to represent everybody. So we therefore uh, must be able to force them to pay dues. And then we introduce a bill saying, okay, we'll remove the union monopoly bargaining power. So you only represent people that are actually members. And their media is like, no, 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 absolutely. We want, we, you know, we want to leave that in place. So they want that monopoly stranglehold. And then they complain about it as, as their uh, justification for forced dues. Yeah. It sounds like a perfect example of uh, a term that I coined they call compensation. So compensation is when you take for granted that something's wrong somewhere that you cannot or will not fix it. So uh, then you go and deliberately do the wrong thing, like on purpose, allegedly to fix this other thing that you can't fix. So, you know, letting the air out of three tires if you have a flat. Or in this case, well, you know, we're forced to represent all those people, so therefore we need a new law that forces everybody to pay us. Right. Well, how about just repeal that first one and then problem solved, right? Anyway, obviously that's 
the whole thing's disingenuous as hell. Right. It's not uh, not really what it's about. Yeah. So that took that took me, and you know, that was the first fifteen years of my career was was working for, uh, and most of that time, vice president of National Right to Work, where I was doing fundraising and media and policy. I was on the legal foundation side, so I was focused on all of our legal cases uh, on behalf of workers who were being victimized by union abuse. And so that was very fulfilling because I looked at, you know, big labor as the engine of the political left, or at least one of the main funding mechanisms for the political left. And, you know, all done with, you know, for the most part with compulsory money and government grants and, and other perks and so forth. All of that leads to corruption, of course, as well, uh, because there's no market forces in, or very few in, in, the, in the process. Workers can't withdraw their support, all that. So anyway, the bottom line was, you know, that was fulfilling work for a long time. And, and uh, then I moved into um, publishing with a friend of mine, uh, a financial newsletter publishing property. And we launched Precious Metals as a offering to our subscribers uh, because the only folks that really, and I was already an investor in Precious Metals at that time, uh, personally, uh, five or seven years before that. Uh, but a lot of our subscribers were interested in precious metals and how to hedge against inflation. And this was, you know, 2008, 2009, right around the financial crisis, there was a, a huge amount of interest coming in. But all of the people, all the companies that wanted to advertise, or, or I should say, who could afford to advertise in our publication to give us, you know, what we needed to give them the ad slot, were the ones that were selling the rare coins and the, and the proof coins and the highly marked up, high commission-based products. And, you know, we've just seen, you know, both on the personal level, just knew that wasn't a good thing to invest in unless you're a true expert. And it isn't the same thing as owning physical gold bullion or silver bullion or a bar or a bullion coin, but it's more of an, an artwork and type thing, a collector thing where a lot of the value is caught up in a very subjective measure of rarity and, and, you know, whatever year and whatever condition, and there's all these beautifully, you know, hologram slabbed plastic encased collectibles that are sold for many multiples of the actual metal value and just didn't feel comfortable putting that kind of thing in front of our subscribers because we didn't think it was a good investment. So that's how we decided, well, I'm, I'm just going to launch a precious metals company myself and sell bullion because that's what people actually should be buying if they're looking for, for gold and silver. And so that's how we launched Money Metals. And that was in 2010. So we were able to launch it really from the get-go with a, already a pretty significant customer base uh, because we had the publishing company. And so uh, I sold my interest in the publishing company a couple years later and, and took over the full majority interest in Money Metals. And that's, that's where we you know, started and built from there. And we've been in business for 12 years. When I first started my journey into um, precious metals, and you're right, I... Uh discovered uh, Antal Fekete probably about eight or 10 years after you did. You know, I started coming to some of these conferences and, uh, you know, there were certain vendors that were promoting these, you know, numismatic coins. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm as interested in the next guy and seeing something truly rare, like this was a coin minted by Julius Caesar, you know, 2000 years ago, or this was, this was the coin of, uh, you know, King George the day before the U.S. Revolution or something like that. Those are, you know, kind of interesting, but most of these numismatic coins are don't have that kind of provenance. And the way they would often try to sell it to me, and, and to your point about is this a good investment, is they said, well, it's confiscation proof. And I'm like, wait, what? You know, because there's no confiscation of gold. Well, 
you know, if the U.S. government ever confiscated, you know, when the U.S. government confiscates again, because they they seem highly certain of that in their in their marketing in their sales, uh, uh, you know, high pressure sales push, when the U.S. government confiscates again, then um, you know there was an implication they would be bound by whatever it was that FDR did in 1933, which is probably not the case. I mean, I'm not a legal expert. It seems to me if you're going to pass a new law now, it doesn't have to say whatever a law did in 1933 said anyway. But anyways, in 1933, they exempted numismatic coins, and so these would be exempt. And um, so that was one argument. And I was like, I'm not sure I can really get my head around that. Then the other one was, oh, well, you know, you can't carry more than $10,000 cash on an airplane. So if you really want to take, you know, a couple of million dollars to Switzerland or whatever, you can buy just a few of these little dime-sized, highly rare, you know, coins. And then, you know, as a way of conveying value, I guess, and then you sell them in Switzerland where presumably the market's the same as it is here. I never verified whether or not that's true, but that also seems to be a bit dubious. But the, the real question was, what's the bid-ask spread? You know, so you're buying it, you have to pay the ask price of the dealer here and pay for all that high-pressure salesmanship. Then when you go to dump it over there, you're getting the bid price. And, you know, on, on those coins, I think the bid-ask spread is 30 or 50% or right. more. That's right. And so, if you so, can sell yeah, it at all. If you can sell it at all. So, so a great way to convey three million, you know, two million dollars worth of value between here and Switzerland is to buy three million dollar coin. Except, right. you know, that's the old joke. Like, what's what's the best way to add twenty thousand dollars to the value of your home? Put in a fifty thousand dollar kitchen remodel. <laughs> what's the yeah. best way to make a small fortune in Las Vegas? Bring a large fortune. Right. Um, you know, there seemed to be something about it that didn't really quite work for the for the investors. Anyways, I don't want to yeah. get too too caught up in that. So, so you founded MMX. But the other thing that you're involved in, I want to ask more about, is the campaign for sound money. And um, how do you see that? You know, both related to MMX and you know, where do you think you know sound money is going uh, as a policy? And then you know, I'll, I'll probably butt in at a certain point because I've had some experience in my own public policy fights as well. Yeah. Well, you. Yeah, I know you. You've been involved in some of these uh, state legislative legislative battles over the over the years as well. Um, so. About five years into Money Metals, I, you know, I guess part of part of my DNA is public policy, and I just kind of was, am always drawn back to that to some extent. And I care, you know, I, I got involved in precious metals because it fits my ideology. I, you know, I, it's it's free market money, and it's it's a way, you know, the gold, the idea of gold in the monetary system is is a way of introducing discipline onto the politicians, politicians, you know, that are desperately trying to avoid that and has for the most part with a unbacked fiat system have have avoided that with that system so i look at i look at the policies as i'm going along as a as a precious metals dealer and seeing a lot of things that are really a problem for our customers and for a remonetization in practical terms of gold and silver as a usable money again so i decided that you know there's a there's a niche a niche here a, a need that is not being addressed, and unfortunately not very addressed very well at all by the industry groups, um, and decided to launch um, the Sound Money Defense League as a project primarily or principally of Money Metals Exchange uh, as a way of advancing actual legislation and thinking, but in particular with a focus on legislation that would promote gold and silver as money in the U.S. And, you know, that 
involves both federal legislation as well as state legislation. So we have been over the years working on a number of bills. We've had a, a fair bit of success at the state level. The federal level is a, another matter, but we do have projects there. But in particular, I, I feel that the number one problem, at least in practical terms, is the friction around the buying and the selling, which is the taxation. So you have sales tax, or at least did or do in most in most states you don't, but you still do in a few. You have sales tax on the front end, and then you have income tax on the back end. Um, and so it's interesting because on one hand, you know, the idea of sales tax is it's a tax on consumable goods like you know, uh, clothing or automobiles or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then on the back end, it's like oh, you have a capital asset and you now have appreciation, and you know, so your 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 consumable now is gained value and you have to pay you know income tax on on that side so you basically have double taxation um so it about seven or eight years ago there were about 33 states that fully exempted precious metals fully or partially exempted precious metals from the sales tax so there was already a lot of these laws in the books exempting gold and silver from from the sales tax in the states but now there are 41 there are 41 states that fully or partially exempt gold and silver from the state sales tax. And that's partly a result of our efforts on the Sound Money Project. In, in particular, the, the last five years, we've passed working with in-state legislators, sometimes dealers, and grassroots people on our list who've been reaching out and lobbying their state legislatures with our prompting. Um, we've, we've been able to pass sales tax exemptions in Louisiana, Ohio, Arkansas, and West Virginia in the last four, four years or so. We have bills right now in the nine remaining states uh, where there still is full taxation of precious metals on the sales, sales tax side. We have bills in New Jersey, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Hawaii right now. Um, the most promising of those, I would say, are Tennessee and maybe Kentucky and Mississippi. But Hawaii, we're not ruling out Hawaii either because we, we actually passed it through a committee there already. Uh, and that's a Democrat stronghold, but this isn't necessarily a partisan issue, although it sometimes seems to be. So the sales tax is probably the, the most obvious and perhaps the, the least difficult thing to address. Then there's the income tax. So with, with income tax, you have both state and federal income tax on so-called capital gains. And of course, just like any asset in an inflationary environment that's priced in nominal Federal Reserve notes, you know, if it if it gains in in priced in those Federal Reserve notes, the US government feels that you have a taxable gain and have to pay that at the federal level. But with gold and silver, it's actually a discriminatorily high capital gains tax rate of 28%. That's right. It's a higher rate than everything else has a Special punishment. Right, right. So Congressman Alex Mooney has a bill that would eliminate all uh, income tax on gold and silver. It wouldn't just put it down at 15 or 20% like other ass capital assets, but actually would remove it. So it'd be like the Federal Reserve note. There, you, know, you don't get to deduct losses in purchasing power that you have on Federal Reserve notes. So why should you pay capital gains taxes on a nominal gain in your gold and silver, which in many cases is nominal and not real because, because of inflation. So the bottom line is that the federal law needs to be changed on the tax issue. And, and, and as far as that goes on the income tax for precious metals, it's not even statutorily prescribed 
that gold and silver would be taxed at that higher rate, or at all for that matter. The US Treasury actually has the ability, at least to some extent, like with gold and silver eagles and things like that, they could literally just exempt them without legislation. They could say these are these are not going to be subject to income tax. So this bill, in some sense, reaffirms they shouldn't be taxed, but then makes it clear that no gold and silver, physical gold and silver, would, would be subject to the capital gains tax. But then you have the state capital gains tax or the income tax, because the way that works at the state level is as people file their state income tax returns, the first number that comes down is what is your federal adjusted gross income? And so if you had to report so-called gains on gold and silver federally, it imports it into your state income tax and you essentially will pay the you know state income tax on those gains. And so what some states have done, not many yet, but there have been states that have literally subtracted that back out and said if you have a gain federally, you remove it. And 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 some of them are neutral in the sense that if you had a loss federally, you add it back, which frankly I I'm fine with. I think it's it's principally very consistent. Uh, in most cases, you'll you'll end up paying lower taxes because, on the whole, there's inflationary impacts to the gold and silver price over time. So, Arizona, where you are, and you probably know this. In fact, I think you were involved in that bill passed a state income tax exemption on gold and silver. Um, there was also one passed in Wyoming, although Wyoming did some other things with that bill, and they currently don't have income tax at all, but they basically said there shall be no in, no taxes of any kind assessed against gold and silver. We also have, we passed it through Idaho and one house didn't become law a couple years ago, but there's a bill right now in Oklahoma and will be a bill in South Carolina and Iowa this session that remove income tax from gold and silver at the state level. So I would say, you know, half of what we focus on and pro- well, 75% of what we focus on is on the tax issue, but we actually have a ranking of all the states based on 12 policies, and we score them on all those policies in, in every state. And about half of the weighting of the what we call the sound money index is evaluating the tax policy. And then the other half deals with other issues that we can get into. Yeah, you know, so I was... Um... I was involved in Arizona from the very first year that I'm trying to remember if that was Senator Farnsworth introducing it in 2012, maybe. Anyway, it took five years. Of those five years, uh, four of them passed out of committee to, uh, you know, vote of the uh, of the full, you know, House and Senate. You, know, you mentioned partisan issue. Uh, and Arizona here generally passed on straight on partisan party lines. <laughs> Though I have to say, this is this is to me as a, as a legislative outsider. It was very amusing to see in one of the subcommittees, I don't remember if this was, no, this was the House, because I know who it was, but I'm not going to say. You know, there was all this discussion of it, and the Republicans were generally, you know, indifferent to maybe slightly indulgently tolerant of it, and the Democrats were pretty hostile to it, as I recall. When it came time to, to call roll and actually vote on it, the um, person who would have been the chair, but had delegated to somebody else, literally grabbed up, you know, the, the laptop, the notebook and whatever, and ran out the back door. So in Arizona, there's there's a back door where they can get to their like private offices. And then there's the front door that the public goes into in, in these um, hearing rooms, ran out the back door right before calling roll. I was like, well, that's bizarre. And then someone said, uh, oh, yeah, that person's spouse is a banker or something like that. And, you know, didn't want to be on record as voting for this crazy gold thing, but didn't want to be on record as voting against it either because that wouldn't have been politically astute in the state of Arizona. So anyway, so um, four times it passed. Each time, 
slightly more watered down because it received three vetoes from two Republican governors. One Jan Brewer, two Doug Ducey vetoed it twice before finally signing <laughs> it the third time around. And, um, you know, I'd never heard of this before and I couldn't have imagined it before I saw it, that, you know, here, past strict party lines, and that is every Republican voted aye and every Democrat voted nay, and a Republican voter, a governor vetoed something that was unanimous on his own party side, or her own party side in the case of Jan Brewer. Still not sure I really quite understand that. The politics were, you know, were very bizarre. Um, and then each time, you know, because I was working with the various legislators involved, Senator Farnsworth, Representative Fincham, you know, both, both were just stalwarts of this effort and just real troopers. And every year, you know, trying to get some indication from the governor, what's the issue, what's the issue? And then continue, you know, each year kind of narrowing the scope of the bill down to, it went from gold and silver recognized as money and legal tender and all kinds of other things down to, um, you know, repeal the, the capital gains tax. So Arizona is, is one of those states that you take your federal AGI, you subtract any gains you had from gold and silver, you add any losses that you deducted from your federal AGI, gold and silver, you know, and that's it. And then there was recently a Twitter storm where one of the sort of free market-ish economists was saying Arizona passed legal tender. And I said, no, uh, we didn't. We only passed, you know, the repeal of the tax. Anyway, he, he said something kind of derisive and dismissive, you know, kind of trying to treat me like a peon who didn't know anything. And I was like, um... Anyways, that didn't go anywhere, but uh, that, so that was the result of that. And my, my personal takeaway from that was, and so I was involved in, and also in lobbying in Texas uh, and a couple of the states you mentioned. And um, my personal takeaway is this is, maybe you just need more patience than I have. Maybe I'm just too, you know, wanting everything now, now, now. But I, I, I kind of walked away of like, wow, is there really gonna be progress at, at the legislative level? And I saw, you know, here in Arizona, these two, you know, particular politicians and a few others, it almost seemed like the, that gold was a hobby for them. Like, I, I don't think there was a great deal of constituent support. I don't think there was a great deal of voters who didn't want it. And I didn't see any real opposition. Like every time that, you know, they asked for testimony in, the, in these hearings, the only opposition was like, you know, legislative council or the treasurer's office. And usually it was a minor knit. Like, you know, one year it was... Um, the government agreed, the state of state of Arizona government would have to accept payment of taxes remitted in gold. And then the treasurer's office came to testify and say, we don't have the means. If somebody would show up at our counter and put gold coins on it, we wouldn't be able to tell counterfeit from real. We wouldn't have the safes and the other you know, handling procedures, that kind of thing. But there was no objection from the public, but nor was there a great deal of enthusiasm either. So if you're a politician, you know, you're spending political capital and, you know, you only have a certain amount of that. And so, you know, is this, is this something that they're going to really get behind? Yeah. Well, you know, on that, on that topic, this is where some of my grassroots experience with national right to work comes into play. And I think there's a, there's a lot more ability to affect these policies by generating grassroots, uh, you know, heat, if you will. And we've been doing that uh, with our, e we have a pretty large email list and we also have a very large customer list and, you know, hundreds of thousands of emails, hundreds of thousands of customers. And we have been leveraging those, those lists to contact people in these states at targeted moments where a little bit of lobbying on their part to the member of the committee 
or the chairman of the committee or the house leadership or whatever can make a difference in getting them to move forward on on the legislation. And I, I can tell you that last year, for example, in Arkansas, we would not have passed the sales tax exemption had it not been for the grassroots mobilization that was done. Now, we, we're leading this, of course, and but beyond that, we're sharing these creatives with other groups. We've shared it with Campaign for Liberty more recently, and they have a grassroots base of people that care about these issues. Um, more recently, I, I've shared some of these uh, email templates with some of my competitors and encouraged them to send it out to their customers in those states. Uh, just last week, I sent it to a couple of major competitors of ours, and I'm hopeful that they'll uh, you know, continue to, or I don't know if they've done it, but um, they're not as motivated necessarily on this topic as I am. We're, we tend to be more ideological about monetary issues at Money Metals, perhaps, than some of the other major dealers who are not necessarily, you know, ideological people, but uh, but the bottom line is the grassroots does make an impact. In fact, in Arkansas, as I mentioned, we, you know, the chairman was not going to have a hearing on the bill, and he was blowing us off. And he started hearing from probably hundreds of people because we were emailing thousands of people. And he called up and said, "You guys, you don't need to do this." You know, he was trying to talk us. He was he was he was angry, <laughs> but at the same time, he was like, "You're going to get a hearing on the bill." Just you know, so. So he gave us the hearing. It passed because it hadn't passed like a couple years earlier. We had a hearing. It didn't go anywhere. And, you know, the politicians and this is something I learned. The politicians like to complain and, and try to make you think that if you get if you're getting their attention, first, they ignore you. First, they ignore you. And they try to hope that you're just going to walk away and, and, oh, they don't care. They're not listening. Uh, and but then they start complaining. If you're starting to get to them, you're starting to, you know, they're they're hearing from people. Now there's a problem. We got to figure out what this is about. Could get worse. Need to figure out what the issue is. Okay. You know, so they focus on the issues that are getting their attention. And if you're on their radar, that's a good thing. Now that sometimes they'll call and complain or threaten, you know, if you keep this up, you're going to stop. We're going to, you're never going to get a hearing. And the important lessons that I learned at National Right to Work in grassroots politics is that means that you need to double down, not back off. You know, because it's the next thing is that, you know, first it's first it's ignored, then it's complained, then it's threatened, then it's get other people to threaten, call your board members, call, you know, your bill sponsor, you know, whatever. And then, you know, there's this cycle. And then hopefully if you keep pressing, it ends in just capitulation, which is, you know, do what we want you to do. And I can tell you that 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 does work. And at the state level compared to the federal, I'm not saying it doesn't work at the federal level, but it's a harder thing to do at the federal level because it's bigger and there, you know, but at the state level, there aren't many groups that are organized on a legislative policy issue that can do grassroots or are willing to do grassroots. And so when a state legislator starts getting dozens of emails and calls or more, because somebody like us or on any issue that sent out emails and letters to their people saying, call this person and tell them to support this bill. That is organization that they don't often see at the state level in any real way. And so that's, I think, part of the reason why we're making some progress here is because we're using some of those approaches to let people know who care and ask them to take some action. And again, I, I think it's it's part of the secret to success. And so we're really stepping up those efforts of, of grassroots mobilization in, in all of our bills as much as we can. And uh, we're going to continue doing that. And, and I'd like I said, I'd like to get more competitors and others in the industry who have large lists of people that care about these issues to join with us in putting pressure on these people to remove sales tax, remove income tax, and so forth. 
do you think there will be, um, you mentioned Representative Mooney, I think, at the, at the federal level. Um, do you think there will be any success at the federal level anytime soon in, um, re I mean, repealing the capital gains tax on gold? That would be like, oh, my God, stop the presses. We have to talk, you know, everybody in this space who's ever written a word about gold would have to stop everything they're doing to write about that. Do you think that's in the cards anytime soon? Well, I don't think it's, I don't think anything that, that reduces taxes in any way is in the cards with the current Congress. So, um, and this included, but, you know, other bigger tax type issues. So I would say, you know, the bill is written. It's, it's well written. It's there. There's also a bill to audit the Federal Reserve or audit the, uh, the gold reserves that Mooney has, which is also to look at any encumbrances and other burdens placed upon the, the national gold. So these bills are there, and in a certain situation, I could see you know lots of attention drawn to these. If we have another crisis, or there's a change in Congress, and there's more appetite, so I mean I, I'm not going to say it's I don't want to say that it's it's not going to happen. I, I don't think it's going to happen this year. I don't think it's going to happen next year necessarily. But I think that we're gaining we're gaining strength at the state level on the sound money issue, and that has a way of reverberating. I think as you know, as as things play out with the Federal Reserve and inflation, I can tell you this year, for example, on the inflation subject, you know, we're seeing seven and a half percent according to government statistics, which is you know probably understates the true rate of inflation. We're definitely finding more interest in our bills at the state level this year than last year because of inflation being a topic. You know, sometimes bad is good. You know, one of, one of my models um, when I got started in this, and in, in terms of lobbying and legislation, was about twenty twelve for me. Personally, I remember looking at the marijuana, you know, policy, and I think I think it was called the Marijuana Policy Project (MPP), and you know, there's a whole movement, obviously, behind going state by state and legalizing it. And I remember thinking this is brilliant because, first of all, if you get three states to do it, you know, one, two, three trend, journalists have to kind of cover it. I'm not sure that's entirely been true in the case of gold. It certainly was in the case of marijuana. And then as you go from state to state to state and more states are legalizing marijuana, yeah. it becomes inevitable that it will be a federal bill. Um, I, I think it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Not that I'm a big fan of either getting high on marijuana or the way that they've turned it into more of a fascist regime where the government grants certain cronies get, you know, licenses, which is a license to practically mint money because the demand for marijuana is off the charts. And then, of course, they tax it and they do all, you know, to just be decriminalized and de unregulated, but um, you know, it, I guess it's better. It's better than what it was, which was criminal before. And uh, I wonder if there's a similar thing with gold. Like, if you get enough states to recognize that, hey, taxing this is wrong, even if we even if we fall short of recognizing it as money, we don't necessarily want to open that door right now. But we say, okay, we're not going to tax it. Would that eventually sweep into you know at the federal level and become you know, thing. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we're, we're, why we're focused on the states, because we're making progress on the sales tax in particular. The income tax is sort of project number two, and there's other things we're involved with beyond that. But, but we're down to nine states. Uh, it was 15 states only a few years ago. Um, and so now you have like Tennessee or uh, Mississippi, you know, these states are surrounded for the most part by states that don't have a sales tax. So one, you know, it, it actually strengthens the argument because it's like, look, people are just going to leave your state. Businesses are going to cross the border. 
investors are going to cross the border. You know, it just adds more arguments. And, you know, and this is you're becoming sort of an outlier, sort of a way out of the mainstream of the states on the sales tax issue. And particularly if they're surrounded by states that don't have the same policy. So it becomes the momentum builds. And so I think, you know, over the next few years, I think we're going to knock out a few more sales tax. You know, we're going to have exemptions on gold and silver like they should be because they're they're not consumables anyway. They're held for resale. I mean, remember, the whole idea of sales tax is, oh, it's you're the final user of the good. But these are inherently held for resale or exchange and not held for consumption. You know, maybe a right. maybe, maybe right. a rare coin is you could say that's you're consuming it. But as as a rarity that you it gives you pleasure. You put it on your, you know, your wall or whatever. But the bottom line is that, you know, the whole idea of sales tax on gold and silver is completely invalid, even if you look at what the sales tax is all about. You know, I'm not trying to say sales tax legitimate, but it's definitely not legitimate with gold and silver. And then beyond that, then you move, okay, then we, then, then it's like, okay, we've solved the sales tax problem for the most part. Now we have the state income tax and, you know, people get it. We've had bills, we've passed them through chambers. We passed them in Arizona. It passed completely and then you start having this friction between, you know, states saying we don't conform to your federal number of what is income. And the more states that do that, I think it puts more pressure on the feds, which is really the, the main policy there is the income tax. There's no sales tax federally. Right. And, and the lion's share of income tax on anything, including gold, would be at the federal level. Right. Most people, right. the state tax is a small fraction of the federal anyway. Right. Um, and I wrote an article for Forbes many years ago talking about um, how this tax is a real impediment to the circulation of gold and silver, and not just the payment of it, but the um, record keeping. Right. You know, if you, exactly. were to, if you were to pay for a steak dinner by handing over a silver eagle, you'd have to know which silver eagle that was and what date what you bought it. Was. Yeah, what yeah. your tax basis, right? And, um, you know, I, I don't think most people are prepared you know, in, in, in terms of their own personal um, balance sheet, I don't think most people are prepared to have that kind of compliance, maintain those kind of records. I, I know what it takes like to do that at a corporate level. It's a big deal to really be able to get it right, to really be able to prove right. this is this item and that's that item. And um, uh, most people are probably intimidated by that and it's onerous. So it becomes much easier to just shove it in a safe. And, you know, even if it wasn't for the temptation to, spend the lower quality money anyway, people prefer to spend the dollars for a hundred other reasons anyways. Right, exactly. You know, this would just be one more impediment to, um, hey, well, when did you get that? And what was the price at the time you, you, know, you got it? And now you're getting rid of it on this day. And you know, are you gonna use the London PM fix? Are you gonna use the Kitco closing price? Like what price of gold do you use? Is that contestable? You know, little things like, oh, the last PM fix for the year is December 27 but there was a market in the US that was open on the 29th or 30th or something like that. How can you justify using the 27th? Well, the PM fix is the benchmark price. Kitco at the closing, is there really any liquidity there? You know, you can see the, vol the volatility blip at plus or minus 10 bucks pretty easily, which is correct at the moment the market opens later. But, you know, anyways, you have all those kinds of issues that I think at the individual, uh, you know, consumer level, nobody's gonna wanna touch that. It's intimidating. It's onerous. You know, if you get it wrong and the IRS decides to go after you, you know, you could, you could, you could be in a world of hurt and, and, and for what, right? Well, that would be exciting to look forward to if there was, um, you know, any real possibility, maybe with the changing of the guard in Congress, 
Um, yeah. I guess we'll see what happens in November uh, with that. Keith, let me uh, just address the other topics in the Sound Money Index that we rank, and I'll, I'll mention the t- the best states and the worst states on the index because I think that might be of interest. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mentioned about fifty percent of the index scores states based on sales and income tax policies relating to precious metals, but we added uh, other policies that are significant, such as whether the state has uh, specific performance for gold clause contracts, where you know they can't a court cannot substitute. Federal Reserve notes for a contract that was supposed to be payable in gold, and that's uh, maybe a, it might be considered a relic. But you know, you know a lot about gold clause contracts and and how reintroducing those mm-hmm. is part of part of remonetization of gold uh, and silver. Um, another is whether a state has affirmed that gold and silver are money, as Article One, Section Ten of the U.S. Constitution says that you know the state actually is, cannot make payment. Uh, other than in gold and silver coin, according to the U.S. Constitution, so some states have said gold and gold and silver are money in our state. They don't necessarily build an apparatus around that. There's a bill in Wyoming that's coming up that that actually puts some teeth into how, what that means and how that's implemented by the state treasurer with exchange rates based on the price of gold versus Federal Reserve notes. The a power to accept it, the power to hold it in reserve, the power to invest it in uh, leases or bonds. There's there's a bill that's on the drawing board in Wyoming. It hasn't been introduced yet. That that adds a lot more to that concept. There's also let, let me know if I can, if, yeah. let me know if I can help on that front. By the way, yeah, and uh, you know Larry Hilton, he you know the UPMA, he's mm-hmm. involved with that. Um, I'll send you some information on that, um, and you can talk to him about it too. I don't think it's going to be introduced this year necessarily, but uh, it may be maybe next year. Um, the, the, there's another uh, column uh, dealing with whether a state has a state chartered a bullion depository like Texas does. So we score that. Texas is the only one. There was a study that we uh, helped or encouraged Tennessee to do on whether to have a Tennessee bullion depository. And they actually had a special legislative study committee put together this report, a 40-page report. And their conclusion was, no, it's not a good idea. But the main one of the main reasons was because Tennessee still has a sales, ta- a sales tax. And so nobody's going to want to store their gold in Tennessee when you know it's based on the state you deliver the gold to. And they have a sales tax. So that's actually given some some more weight to the argument to repeal the sales tax on precious metals in Tennessee, even though they're not going to pursue the bullion depository. There's a bill in Oklahoma to, to set up a bullion depository system. I'm not a huge fan of the idea. I mean, I, I have mixed feelings, I guess I should say, about the government getting involved in a bullion depository when there's plenty of private depositories, including mine, money metals depository. The argument, though, is that perhaps a, a, a depository that has a state charter might have some greater protection vis-a-vis the federal government in some sort of aggression against gold where, you know, under the state's police powers or somehow under the state's umbrella, there's a bullion depository um, that might, you know, might insulate it more from some sort of federal prohibition or seizure or whatever. So, you know, that's that's a kind of a legal issue, but that's part of the, the rationale. Um, we also score whether a state has any gold or silver in their reserve funds or in their pension funds. And right now, uh, we only know that Ohio has gold in its pension funds. We heard that Texas actually sold their gold. Yeah, that was some um, years ago. Yeah, uh, and, and that came out in the Tasser study 
that was done in Tennessee. But there's a bill currently in Idaho that will probably pass the Idaho House tomorrow, uh, which would be February 17th, and then go to the Senate. There's a bill in Oklahoma to have the state at least have the ability to hold gold and silver as a reserve asset instead of, because right now a lot of states, what they have, and it, you know, not that they have big reserves, but they also have these idle monies that are this perpetual sort of short-term fund of surplus tax funds that are waiting to be spent. So in Oklahoma, they have $11 billion kind of on a rolling ongoing basis. And in Idaho, they have $10 billion on a rolling ongoing basis that is held in short, uh, I'm sorry, low interest debt paper, entirely low interest debt paper at a yield nominally of less than 1% and a negative real yield of probably, you know, at this point, five to seven or 8%. And so the idea is that, you know, at least for the longer term portion of these funds, shouldn't we add, allow the treasurer to add gold and silver, physical gold and silver as, as a hedge against the inflation that this de- this massive pile of debt paper is is you know uh, suffering from so we rank whether a state has reserve funds or pension funds held in gold we also added to the index one of your issues uh, the gold bonds idea and right now no state either invests in or holds or or, or uh, has a gold bond um, so it's there they all get a zero on it that's fine. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. I know Arizona considered that, and maybe at some point in the, in the not too distant future, a, a state will do that. We also, and this is the final one, we also uh, score precious metals, what we call precious metals dealer and investor harassment laws. And so what that is, is these state laws that make it difficult for bullion dealers to do business, do normal business, or invade the privacy of their customers who want to come in and buy or sell from that local dealer. And so I'll give Arizona as an example, because it's actually the worst for all of them. Um, And what they do is they have a, number one, if you sell to an Arizona dealer, uh, and there's about 20 states that have this, more than 20 actually, uh, you have to provide an uh, an identification. So you go, you come in with a thousand dollars worth of gold. You have to provide a photo ID. They take pictures of the gold that you sold, like gold bars or coins or whatever. Uh, gold eagles. They're all fungible. They all look the same. Then they have to write down notes about your appearance. You know what you said. Store this information, but upload it daily to the sheriff into a database. Set that gold aside. Not sell it for two to three weeks, depending on the state. Sometimes it's 10 days, 20 days. Literally just keep it on the premises, don't sell it, so that in the off chance somebody makes a complaint that this was stolen goods. You know, In the case of jewelry, you could, you could okay, every piece of jewelry, it's unique. That's you know grandma's brooch, whatever. But a gold eagle coin, you know, it's fungible, it's not identifiable. And in any event, it's just a tremendous invasion on privacy for the customer but also the dealer who has to tie up money for long periods of time, leave more metal on his premises. These people sometimes have robberies. So that's some of the stuff. In fact, in in Arizona, it goes further. And this is what makes it especially egregious. Number one, you can't buy gold and silver if you're under 18 without a parent. And if if the dealer sells it to you, uh, they're they're potentially uh, susceptible to imprisonment for six months. Imprisonment? Yeah, you can be fined or imprisoned. It's a misdemeanor. It's a criminal, like a class one misdemeanor um, to sell to. So so you have that. And then the other thing is you cannot, and only two states I think do this, you cannot make any kind of cash payment 
to purchase gold or silver, you have to make an electronic payment or pay by check so that there is a electronic record of the transaction. So all these things, you know, are we call investor and precious metals dealer harassment laws, and we score that. So going just from the top to the, I'll give you the top six states and the bottom six states. So the top six states starts with Wyoming. We give, give it a 61% on the index, then Texas, South Dakota, Alaska, New Hampshire, and Utah. And the worst states starting from the very worst is Vermont, uh, and then New Jersey, Maine, Kentucky, Wisconsin, and New Mexico. So there's uh, there's a lot of work to do, but if people want to see this, they can go to moneymetals.com and actually look at the index. It's in the resources tab. Just look for sound money index and you can look up your state. You can even go and actually look at the actual laws on the books in the state that, that deal with these, these various areas. Well, that's very interesting. I hadn't known that um, Arizona is one of the worst, at least on one of the categories. Um, I certainly would encourage everybody to become aware of these issues and then if you see that your state is doing something really bad, can they coordinate with the Sound Money Project to find other folks in their state to, you know, begin, you know, the, a smart and, and efficient way of lobbying? You know, like if, if, if I'm an individual and I see, okay, my state's doing something that really is just wrongful, and then, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I, maybe I make a call to a senator or something, and then I... I give up. And then the next person, three days later, you'd never get the critical mass that way, even if there were thousands of people that were interested. But if people could coordinate, you know, their activities, you might actually get some traction. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, one way is to get on our email list. You can go to soundmoneydefense.org or moneymetals.com and just go to our email, get on our email list and we will be able to send you alerts about your state. You can go to soundmoneydefense.org and look at the announcements about various pending legislation and, and see who the bill sponsors are uh, or what the bill numbers are. And like I said, there's literally, well, we got five sales tax repeal bills and we have about seven or eight other bills involving some of these other areas pending right now. And most of those, there's information about them right now on our Sound Money Defense website. Um, so that would be probably the best thing to do. Uh, get on our list and then check out the bills and and, t and talk it up to your your representatives in those states. Well, very cool. I hope that uh, this is a growing movement and uh, that we can get traction um, and continue to make progress on this front. Um, very cool. Yep. Yep. I like what you do, Keith. I mean, but on every front, you know, both your, and, and, and what you're doing is similar to, it's in a different way, but it's parallel to what I'm doing. You're, you, you're building a, a, a very successful business on on something that really matters for the country and and it's not just you know sort of ivory tower public policy but it's actual practical useful ways of of using gold and silver and remonetizing gold and silver and in my case i feel like you know putting gold and silver into the hands of individuals and then you know storing it for them if they wish uh, or and or giving them things to do on the public policy front, we're we're addressing problems at the same time as we're we're running businesses that you know are hopefully continue to be successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I founded a, a nonprofit called the Gold Standard Institute, a five hundred one c three, and then at, at the same time, around the same time that I founded Monetary Metals, which is a for profit. And um, I thought that there would be kind of two two arms of the you know pincers 
to attack this problem. One on uh, a little bit more education and outreach, definitely not grassroots organization. And then the other, obviously, offering a value proposition. And um, most of my energies now are focused on the for-profit side. I, I guess partly because making money is good, and, and there's always that. But I think also I just you know, got frustrated with the glacial pace of, of progress. You know, and, I, and I've spoken to legislators in a lot of different states and also MPs and other legislators globally um, and, and some central bankers globally too. And, you know, just walking away with a sense of, even if they personally agree, and I know some central bankers that are, you know, big you know fans of my work and subscribers and have been for years. Oh yeah, you know, we, we pat, whenever you write about our country or whatever, you know, we pass the articles around and, you know, they're, they're well-read and well-liked. You're, you're respected around here, Keith. You know, does that mean there's going to be any kind of gold-related anything, even the word gold being uttered by the... No way. Not in a million years. You know, partly because, you know, I'm, I'm not dealing with the people that, you know, are, are the, you know, the Jay Powells or the equivalent, you know, at the top. I'm dealing with people one or two layers below that. And um, they, you know, they know that it would be career suicide for them to talk about gold, uh, you know, at least in a professional context. So they can get together if I happen to be visiting and have a beer with me and talk about it, but not, you know, officially. But it's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. We'll see if inflation or whatever other drivers may continue to raise you know, awareness and consciousness for gold, which is kind of both a good and a bad thing. It's like, okay, awareness is going up. That's a good thing. But awareness is going up because the world is headed in such a horrible direction. I, I guess I'm reminded of uh, Frodo saying to Gandalf, I wish I hadn't lived to see such times. You know, yeah, okay, I, I get to be hero and do all these things. But um, man, it would have been a hell of a lot easier if I could just stay in Bag End and enjoy life. Those are the times we're in. Well, very cool. I hope that uh, this is a growing movement and uh, that we can get traction um, and continue to make progress on this front. Um, very cool. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show. This has been very interesting to me and I uh, hope very interesting to our uh, subscribers and listeners. And um, so this is Stefan Gleason, who's the founder and founder and, and president slash CEO of Money Metals Exchange, who is a client of Monetary Metals and um, has a uh, open lease deal at the moment for silver. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.